The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Uh, as, we, as we are getting into the text, I want us to think about the concept of redundancy for a minute. Redundancy, if you've written uh, anything for high school or college, or if you write today in any kind of formal sense, you might try to avoid redundancy. You don't want redundant words. You don't want redundant statements. It's not a good writing style. You want to be clear, and you want to remove words that are repetitive. You don't want to be redundant. But redundancy isn't always negative. In fact, it's quite positive. In many professions, redundancies are uh, embedded into systems, whether those systems are organizational, whether those systems are electrical. You have redundancy built into those systems in case if, if anything fail within that system, any component, you would have something that would be able to back up that component that failed. And so you see this throughout organizations, uh, whether it is uh, uh, engineering or whether it's in a hospital, as an example. I think you see, for example, in a hospital, you'll have one example of a redundant redundancy in a system is in an electrical system. You have generators, power generators. Hospitals the world over have power generators, and that's a power generator is a type of redundancy because you don't necessarily need it's not necessary to run the power of the hospital so long as the grid is supplying you with power and we all know PG&E that's not always a guarantee but that's for another time but that type of redundancy that power generator uh, at the hospital is put there just in case the primary component of the power grid blacks out, and you need to run the power of that hospital. And that really is the basic definition of a redundancy. Redundancy is within a particular system, you include components that are not strictly necessary, but that serve as a backup if some essential component of that system were to fail. And you can understand why that would be so important as it, ter- uh, as it regards power in a hospital. You can't afford to be in the middle of a heart- open-heart surgery and lose power to the machines that are keeping your patient alive. So you need to have this redundancy set in place. Uh, Mountain climbers, rock climbers, often incorporate redundancy into their rope, carabiner, and anchor system so that if one of those primary components fails, one of the ropes fail, one of the anchors fail, one of the carabiners fail, they have other components in that system that serve as a backup, that they have redundancy built into their system so that they will not fall off the rock face. Even here at church, we've, as elders, we've discussed how can we include redundancy in our system of recording sermons? Because, believe it or not, we've lost some sermons. We've tried to record all of them, and we've lost some of them. And when that happened, we were like, hey, we've got to have some redundancy in this system so that that never happens again. So we have other ways of recording our sermons, not just one. In each of these examples, the redundancy is put in place with the doctors at the hospital or the climbers on El Capitan or the preachers preaching so they they don't have to worry about a potential negative outcome and they can just focus on their work of being a doctor or sending that route on El Capitan or or preaching. In today's passage, we're actually going to learn about some divine redundancy, if I can use that expression. God, for the sake of our own assurance, will seal his promises with an oath. But he doesn't have to do that because God's word is always true. By definition and by its very nature, God's word is always true. So he doesn't need to seal his promises with an oath. He doesn't need to build redundancy into his system of salvation. Nevertheless, 
He does it for the sake of our faith. He swears an oath that he will fulfill all his promises to his people. Again, he doesn't do it because any component of his system will fail. He does it for our sake. And I like to call this divine redundancy. And I hope that doesn't sound irreverent. It's not meant to be. It's meant to give us the idea of what is being built into our salvation is something for our assurance. God has done everything. He's designed salvation so that we might have assurance. And I know that some of you in here struggle with assurance. And so today's message is hopefully going to help you there to help you see that God has built into the very structure of salvation a kind of redundancy so that you might have that full assurance of faith. But before we get into our passage for today, we do need to revisit Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, particularly verses 4 through 8, for just a moment. You remember the warning of verses 4 through 8. Was that brutal or what? Talking about someone who is unable to repent. They've tasted of the good things of the age to come. They've tasted of the good word of God, had fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And the warning is that you don't fall away from that because if you do, repentance is impossible. And that was just a tough word to hear. And uh, we came to that passage because the, the author had, had, at the point of wanting to talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood, Christ Melchizedekian priesthood, he had to stop in the middle of that and actually rebuke the congregation because they had fallen into some sort of spiritual dullness. And he had to warn them, saying that spiritual dullness will lead to falling away from Christ. So I actually need to issue this warning so that you'll be set back on the right track. Spiritual regression, something that they were struggling with, leads to falling away from Christ and not going to heaven. So he had to stop dead in his tracks and address that issue. Now, some of you had some excellent questions after the sermon, uh, and they fell into rel- relatively just two categories. And so I wanted to address those categories today because for me, clarity is the goal. I, I don't want anybody to leave with a lack of clarity as it pertains to understanding the Word of God. And after that sermon, I desired for you all to have clarity, and, and many of you did, but some of you had a few questions, and so I want to revisit those before we get into today's passage. Really, we can't get into today's passage without making sure that we have clarity on Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, particularly verses 4 through 8, that warning there. So, the first main question, so like I said, two main categories of questions, uh, as, I, as I heard them, as I was sorting them out. Though they had some different nuance, they generally fell into two categories, so I'm going to answer those two. The first question went like this. Derek, I know of people who once professed Christ and who are no longer walking with the Lord. Are they the person described in Hebrews chapter 6? That's a really good question. That's a perceptive question. That's a caring question. You care about people you've known who have been in the church, who have professed faith in Christ, and now they've walked away perhaps even some of them just outrightly rejecting the gospel and saying they want to have nothing to do with it. What do we do with that situation? Is that what Hebrews 6 is describing? And I would remind us that the first point of application for Hebrews chapter 6 is you and it's me. It's not for the person over there. It's not for the person over there. It's for you and it's for me. It's for, it's for me. As we read it, we want to apply that warning to ourselves and allow it to humble us so that we'll cry out to the Lord with the, res- the spirit wrought resolved to never walk away from the Lord Jesus. That's what that warning is meant to do. 
The author didn't offer this warning mainly to get us to think about what has happened to others in the past. He gave us the warning for us to think strongly about what's going on with us in the present. It's also important to know when we are assessing another, another person's spiritual situation that we recognize that we don't know all that they've experienced, do we? You can't see into their heart. I can't see into their heart. All we know is what we see. So I can't assess all that they've experienced in relation to sharing the good, uh, tasting of the goodness of the Word of God, sharing in the Holy Spirit. I just can't know those things. So when they walk away from the faith, I can't make a judgment based on what's happening in their hearts because I ultimately don't know all that they've experienced and all that they've felt. When it comes to making a judgment about people who have walked away from Christ, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 should not be our primary text. Actually, 1 John 2.19 should be. And 1 John 2.19 goes like this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That's the text to use when you're thinking about that friend or colleague or family member who has walked away from the faith. They left the faith to make it clear that they are not really Christians. Now, should we be concerned for them? Absolutely, right? Of course we'd be concerned with them, but Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 is, is, is not the primary text that we should go to in, in assessing the situation of our friend or our colleague or our family member who has once professed Christ and, and walked away. Rather, this passage in Hebrews, as hard as it might be, is given to believers as a warning to enable us to persevere all the way to the end of our Christian race and make it to heaven. So that was category number one. Category number two was related, but also uh, had a, a clear nuance that was different. The second question I got related to the nature of the warning. Some of you could not grasp how this warning couldn't be hypothetical if it's addressed to believers and believers know that they can't fall away from the faith. I've been trying to make that clear from the book of Hebrews and other texts that a genuine believer cannot be lost. I mean, there's, there are few greater truths than that in the Bible. I mean, that is a wonderful truth that we can't be lost, that Christ holds on to us. We love that song, he, will, he won't let us go, he'll never let us go, right? Even when we're struggling, he doesn't let us go. But then the response is, okay, if that's the case, Derek, and you're telling me verses 4 through 8 apply to believers, and I, as a believer, know I can't be lost, then this warning must be hypothetical. It can't really happen. And to respond, I would affirm again, no, just because a believer will never actually meet the condition doesn't make the warnings hypothetical, or here's a good word, unnecessary. Just because the believer will always or never meet the condition of the warning doesn't mean the warning is hypothetical or unnecessary. So let me try to put that in an illustration for you. And I've used an illustration like this before, but I think it uh, is worth revisiting. Let's say I'm walking with Eliana, my daughter, on a trail. And it's a trail that I've taken multiple times. But I know that in this trail, 
we're going to a, coming to a very sharp ridgeline. Drop-offs, very steep on both sides. Very dangerous. Up to this point, the conversation, as we're strolling through the meadows, the conversation's been happy. We've been talking about all kinds of stuff. The butterflies, her favorite color pink, her stuffed animals, whatever it might be. We're just, just happy, just walking along. But I know that we're going to come up to this ridgeline. And so before we get to it, I look her in the eye and I say, Ellie, this is a very serious section of trail. You listen to me very carefully. You cannot turn to the right or to the left. You must keep your eyes forward and your hand latched to mine. I don't want you to talk about anything pertaining to stuffed animals on this part of the trail. We are thinking about the trail and that's all we're thinking about. This is a very dangerous section. Now, I know you can make it. And I'm going to ensure that you make it. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be holding on to you. But you must pay attention. Because if you don't and you let go, you will careen yourself to the bottom of this cliff and you will be smashed upon the rocks. <gasps> Whoa, Daddy. Right? Now, I've been on it several times. I know that it's dangerous, but I know that all she needs to get across is a sharp and clear warning of what will happen if she doesn't pay close attention to me and my instruction and hold tightly to my hand. I know that she's my daughter. I know she is going to obey, and she will be fine. But the warning is necessary to get her across that ridgeline. I would never just walk her across that ridgeline without a warning. That would be foolish. That would be presumptuous. And we need to make it to the other side, or I'm sorry, we can't make it to the other side without walking across this ridgeline. It must be traversed. Do we have to go across it? And she needs a warning to safely get all the way across, of this, across this dangerous section of trail. And in order to get her to the other side, she needs a sharp and clear and truthful warning. It's not hypothetical in any way. This is a real warning. It is a real warning because it is a necessary means to get her to the other side safely. A necessary means. The God who has devised the ends, you will make it to the end. The God who has promised you that will happen has also devised the means and these warnings are a necessary means to get you all the way to the end. They are the indispensable means, you could say. You can't traverse that ridgeline without the warning. Yes, a true believer will always heed the warnings. Amen and yes. But this does not mean the warnings are hypothetical. A real warning that is always obeyed is not the same as a hypothetical warning. In fact, Honestly, the phrase hypothetical warning is still nonsensical to me. I can't make heads or tails of that phrase. I don't think it makes sense. A warning, to be a warning, must be truthful. It must be real. But a warning always obeyed is not the same as a hypothetical warning. It is a, the, these warnings here, and we've still got some more to come to, by the way. Right? We've, got, we've got chapter 10, that's going to be a hard one. 
What are they there for? They are the necessary means to get you across that razor-sharp ridge line called life in a fallen world. And so God gives them to his people in his grace so that you will get all the way to the end. I emphasize that this passage this morning is for all believers and that all Christians must take it seriously regardless of how long you've been a Christian. And you might be thinking, why? Why take it seriously if I know I can't lose my salvation? Well, I've already said it because the warning is a necessary means to get you to heaven. A Christian who is confident they can't lose their salvation is also someone who takes the warning seriously because the warnings are the means by which God facilitates your secure salvation. Yes, a genuine believer can't be lost, but how does God make sure you won't be lost? How does he do that? By giving us sharp and serious warnings about apostasy. That's one of the ways he does it. Remember, the author is not trying to undermine your assurance. And that becomes clear in the breath of relief verse in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He goes on to say in verse 11, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The goal of that warning was for you to have full assurance. The aim in offering the warning was to motivate diligence in your life so that we might attain that full assurance and inherit uh, eternal life, the promise of eternal life. That's what verse 11 is saying. It's an intensely practical goal that he has in issuing such such a serious warning. It's to get us to take serious our spiritual lives, to cast off that lethargy, that cast off that laziness, and start being diligent about our spiritual lives that we might have that full assurance and inherit the promises. And in fact, that's the aim of today's passage as well. To undergird and strengthen your assurance. Divine redundancy, as it were, is given for your assurance, for my assurance. If you'll see here in your Outlines, we're here in the section that is is called warning and encouragement, complementary means to get you to heaven. Look at verse 18, jumping right into our passage now, right into the middle of it. He says, verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things, that's the promise and the oath together, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The goal of this passage is to undergird your assurance. The goal of Hebrews 6, the whole chapter, including that horrifying warning in verses 4 through 8, is to get you to hold even more firmly to the promises of God. That is God's means of getting you to heaven. He wants us to to hold even more firmly to these promises. In in verses 4 through 8, you have the warning. And in verses 13 through 20, you have the encouragement. And these two things should never be set in opposition to one another. They are the complementary means of getting you to heaven. This is how God gets us to heaven. Don't set them in opposition to one another. We need both. We need warning and we need encouragement. The encouragement is coming today in verses 13 through 20. So now let's look at this passage in more depth. Verses 
13 through 16, we're going to look at the nature of God's oath-sealed promises, the nature of these promises. What's the nature? They're absolutely certain, absolutely certain. Look at how he connects us with the previous passage with the word for. For, when God made a promise, what is he referring to? He's talking to this imitation, uh, our imitation of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's in verse 12. He wants us to, like those in the past, people he'll outline in chapter 11, he wants us to, like those in the past, have patiently endured what seem like incredible, if not impossible, circumstances to eventually inherit the promise that God had made to them, even though their life and their circumstances make it seem like that promise could never be fulfilled. He wants to encourage us to, through faith, and here's a key word, patience, eventually inherit those promises. And so he's going to give us an example of someone who did that, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, okay, here's the, here's the example now. He'll give us a lot of examples in Chapter 11, here's the specific example for this passage. It's Abraham. We're to imitate him. Like us, Abraham was a recipient of divine promises. We're a recipient of divine promises, so was Abraham. Abraham was promised to be a great nation. That's Genesis chapter 12, and that the whole world would be blessed through him. Genesis 15, God promises, promises Abraham that a son would come from his own body. Then in Genesis chapter 17, God promises that Abraham will inherit a great land and his his descendants will live in that land. And all of these promises are related to each other because who needs a land if you don't have descendants to dwell in it? And how could Abraham ever become a great nation if he doesn't have a son? And how can he have a son since he and his wife are well past childbearing years? From a human perspective, even you could say from a providential perspective, it doesn't seem like these promises can be fulfilled, does it? They all hinge on Abraham having a son coming from his own body, and we are way past childbearing years, okay? So how is this promise going to come to pass? Well, Abraham continues despite all that, okay? And this is why Abraham is brought up. Despite all that, Abraham believes, continues to believe in God's promise as a son, despite outward appearances, despite the circumstances that a promise could, that kind of promise could ever be fulfilled. And wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, Abraham's wife, Sarah, conceives and has a son. And they name him Isaac, because she's laughing in her old age that she would actually have a a son, right? Right? And so you're thinking, great, promise fulfilled. Yeah, except now it's going to be endangered again, this time from God's own hand. God's going to come and he's going to tell Abraham, here's your son, but now you must sacrifice him. Sorry? I, I'm a, a what? The, the, the whole scheme of your promises, the whole structure of your promises depends on this son. Lord, in case you forgot, how, how is it that you could ask me to sacrifice my son? Well, actually, Abraham doesn't wrestle like that. He obeys the Lord. How could he do such? How? Up to this point, he had believed God's promise of becoming a great nation. He believed in God's promise of a son. He believed in God's promise for a land. 
he patiently waited for those promises to be delivered. They were delivered partially in his son Isaac. Now his faith would be tested again. And we turn over here now to Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 and following. We're not going to spend much time there. I'm just going to read through it so we can hear this, the end of this testing. Abraham has been told to give up for good the son of promise. Without wavering, Abraham is going to obey. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and there laid the wood in the order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you would have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. In a beautiful act of providence, God provides for the sacrifice so that his son would not have to be offered. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Everything looked utterly contrary to the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham obeyed. How could he do that? Well, we actually get insight into his, his, his mental process, actually. Uh, we, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and following, it tells us that Abraham was thinking that if he did sacrifice Isaac, God would just give him back anyways in resurrection. I mean, that's mind-blowing faith, right? He, 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 he trusts God so resolutely, so absolutely, that despite all the circumstances being completely contrary to the fulfillment of these promises, he can trust God and, and even have this come up in his heart. Well, God could give him back to me in resurrection. <laughs> wow, Abraham. And that's right. God can do anything. God can do everything. He considered that God, this is verse uh, uh, 17 now in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he he did receive him back. Abraham so believed that God would fulfill his promises that God would do it no matter what, even if it meant doing something apparently impossible, namely bringing back his son from the dead, if it came to that. Now, what's the point of all of this as it relates to his listeners, as it relates to the author of Hebrews' listeners? Why remind us of Abraham's steadfast faith? Well, by giving us this example of someone whose circumstances made it seem impossible that the promises would be fulfilled, We're given help in believing God's promises and persevering in believing God's promises when it looks as though the circumstances are proving otherwise. How could it be that Abraham would become a great nation? He doesn't have a son. How could it be that he would have a son when he's very old? How can these promises be fulfilled now that his son is 
here if he sacrifices his son. All of Abraham's circumstances appear to put God's promises in jeopardy. Yet through faith and patience, Abraham obtained the promise. He was able to see through the circumstances and just see that little bit tiny blip of hope and continue to believe that that little blip of hope would explode into a grand fruition someday and he was able to persevere through these bleak circumstances. So God gives us an example in Abraham. We have to ask, what promise did Abraham obtain? This is a little challenging here, actually. and uh, Interpreters are kind of split on it, actually. What promises did he obtain? One option is to say that he obtained the promise, just he received the promise. He, did, he didn't receive its fulfillment. The, 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 uh, what he obtained was the promise that God had given him, but he would have to eventually wait to receive it in its fullness. But... That can't be entirely right because the point of this passage is to encourage believers that God always keeps his promises. So I'm not going to land there. Another option is to say that he obtained the fulfillment of the promise when he died, right? That he received uh, what he will uh, receive when he died. And they they point to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that says this, these all, referring to Abraham and and, uh, his wife, these all in others who came before him who believed in the one true God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, there it is, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So there is an option that he obtained it later as when he died. But I don't think that can really work either because the the tense of the verb obtained indicates that this is something that he obtains while on earth. So how do we solve this? What did he actually obtain through faith and patience? Where it says here in verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That's verse 15. Well, I do think the second interpretation is right to say that Abraham didn't inherit all the promises or he didn't obtain all the promises while on earth. I think we do have to give credence to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, which indicates that he looked forward along with his Uh, other fellow believers at that time and who came before him, he looked forward to the time when he would receive all those promises, even though he hadn't received all of them here on earth. God had made promises, and and Abraham died in faith, seeing not all of these have been fulfilled, but I look forward to when they will be, and I can die in faith, not in bitterness towards God that he didn't fulfill his promise. So I think that's right. He, uh, but he did obtain some of the promises. We have to also conclude that. Namely, he received the son of the promise once and then again, didn't he? Once through birth, and then once when God returned the son of promise back to Abraham after Abraham gladly gave him up. Isn't that often how God works too? Just as a side point, we give up something, and he will sometimes return it back to us in a different way and in a better way. It's not always the case, but it is one of the ways that God works. And here is the case. Abraham obtains the promise of a son. He, he's told in Hebrews or in Genesis 12 and 15 that he will be a great nation and that he will have a son and all of his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he believes those promises against all hope because he's too old to have kids. And he obtains a son. Huh. 
But then God says, you're going to have to give up that son. And he says, okay. And then he receives the promise back again. He says, no, I'm going to provide the sacrifice and here's your son back. And he gets Isaac back. So in, in that sense, he obtains the promise even two times. Despite circumstances, Abraham, despite the circumstances that seemed to be against the fulfillment of God's promises, Abraham faithfully and patiently waited on God's promise to be fulfilled, and it was. But he was even also willing to die in faith, trusting that eventually God would fulfill all of his promises. And that's exactly what happens in Abraham's life. But the main point of the passage is not to highlight which of the many promises Abraham did inherit while he was on earth, but to underscore the certainty that he would eventually inherit all the promises that God made to him. That's the point. To underscore that God keeps his promises. Abraham's certainty that he would eventually inherit all the promises was grounded in God, his nature, and in the nature of the promises that he makes. Now, we, backing up now to verse 14, it says, or 13 actually, we'll start again. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, uh, by since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now that verse is taken from Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, and it's taken right after that passage that we read of Abraham taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed and the Lord providing a ram in the thicket. It comes right after that. God says, by myself, I have sworn, sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So God here, the God of the universe, who needs no swearing, who needs swear no oath, swears to Abraham this promise, it is sealed for good. What's the significance of this for us, though? Notice what he says. Verse 15, he says, Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Verse 17, For when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, you see what he's doing here? He's connecting us with Abraham. The oath seal promise that God gave Abraham is actually ours too. All the promises made to Abraham belong to us as well. And this is Paul's point in Galatians 3.29. He says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Abraham is going to someday inherit the world. So are we. Abraham is going to someday inherit a great heavenly city. So are we. Why? Because we are united to his final offspring. We are related to to Abraham more closely than even an ethnic Jew, believe it or not, because we are spiritually bound to Abraham's offspring. We are in his family and therefore receive those promises that God sealed several thousand years ago with an oath. Your salvation is sealed with an oath that God made with himself. But not only with Abraham, you'll notice here if you'll just Look over to chapter 7, verse 20 in your Bibles. This is quoting Psalm 110. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, referring to Melchizedek. God is swearing by himself to Abraham, making an oath with Abraham. He's making an oath about Melchizedek. So what is he doing? With that oath made to Abraham and with that oath made about Melchizedek, God has overlaid the entire structure of your salvation with an oath-sealed promise. It's as certain as certain can be. That's the point. You can't get more certain. When God promises, it's certain. But then when God promises with an oath, it's like certain, certain. It's it's just like adding infinity with infinity. It just blows your mind. You can't do it. it. Right? That's what he's, the point here. God has overlaid the entire structure of your salvation, beginning with Abraham, following through with Melchizedek, sealing it in the blood of Jesus, saying, I have sworn by myself, you will inherit the promises. But why else does he bring it up? We skipped over the verse. I did a little bit out of order. Let's look back at uh, verse 16 here. Why else is this significant? Verse 16, it says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Why is he bringing up this issue of oath? Why is he sustaining this argument? Well, we know that when it comes to oath, when, with uh, human oaths, when someone really wants to demonstrate that they are telling the truth and that their word can be trusted, they might swear an oath, Right? I'm sure a lot of you have. I remember growing up in junior high, high school, this was happening all the time. We were always swearing to God, okay? I swear to God, right? Now, it sounds irreverent, probably because it is in a lot of cases. Um, but what is, what is a person doing when they're swearing to God? Well, they're, they're wanting to convince you that they are telling the truth. Won't you believe me? You're kind of like, well, if you were always telling the truth in the past, you probably wouldn't have to be doing this now, right? That's usually how it goes. But anyways, you've heard this expression, I swear to God. And it might go like this. Last weekend, I got to meet Steph Curry. I went to his house. And and, and your friend tells you this, and you would say, no way, really? Actually, probably be more cynical. No way, really? And they would say, yes, my dad met him a month ago, and he invited my whole family over to hang out at his home in Atherton. To which you reply, that's not possible. Your dad doesn't even like basketball. To which your friend says, no, I swear to God. I was over at Steph Curry's house last week and I even met his wife and kids. What is your friend doing? They are trying to convince you that they are telling the truth. (laughs) Won't you please believe me? And you're like, yeah, I would believe you if the last three weeks you haven't been telling blatant lies. You wouldn't have to swear to God, but, but that's the point, right? The point of making that oath is to persuade the person that you can believe me. I am telling the truth. They are, they are a, putting, I swear to God, alongside of their claim so that the disagreement between you two can be final. It can be, it can be ended. The disputation, the disputation is supposed to be over at that point. Once I say I swear to God, argument's over. That, that's, what a, that's what someone's doing. And we really don't realize what we're doing when we do it. I mean, I didn't realize it in high school when I did it. I probably should have been struck down for doing it. But we didn't realize that we are, we're taking upon a holy God's name who is always truthful, who sees everything, who knows everything. And we're saying, 
strike me down if I'm not telling the truth here. I swear to God. Some people will swear on the Bible. They'll swear on their mother's grave. I mean, but the point is simply to say, you can trust my word. Well, what's God doing to swear by himself? Well, here's the second part of your outline. The point of God's oath seal promise, our assurance. That's the point. Why would God introduce unnecessary, I mean, totally unnecessary redundancy? I mean, when I talk about redundancy at the beginning of the message, redundancy is necessary in fallen human organizations and human systems and mechanical systems and electrical systems. That's necessary, but in God's case, it's not necessary. This kind of redundancy that is absolutely not necessary. Why would he do it? Well, he doesn't do it for himself, does he? He doesn't need to prove. He doesn't need to bolster his, his reputation with a, an oath, like we have to bolster our reputation with an oath, right? He doesn't have to do that. Why does he do it? And here's the beauty of this passage. He does it for your assurance. He does it for my assurance. Verse 17, so when God desired to show, show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. There's your answer. More convincingly. He wants you to be persuaded, persuaded. He wants you to be convinced, convinced. He wants you to be sure, sure. Unlike our words, God's word is always true. He is unswervingly, unchangingly, constantly truthful. He cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. We talk about the power of God and God can do everything. No, God can't do everything. God cannot lie. And your salvation is dependent upon that beautiful, wonderful, solid truth. God cannot lie. So when he swears by himself, he must be doing it for another reason. And the author tells us why he's doing it. He's doing it for you. He's doing it for you. He's doing it for me. He's doing it for his people. So that you will be certain. God confirms his promise with an oath in order to convince you that you can hang your life and eternity on his promises. He will always come through. He does it so you will have an unshakable encouragement to hold fast to the hope of salvation. That's why he does it. Life right now may look utterly contrary to the fulfillment of God's promises in your life. Your life is riddled with trials, large and small. There's chaos all throughout the world, in our nation, in our city, in our state. Those who defy Christ and hate Christ are given money and platforms and power. You may be ridiculed by family, friends, and colleagues for your faith in Christ. And that's not to mention your own struggle with sin. And the fact that you're not able to come certain, overcome certain sins that you thought you'd be able to overcome by now. And that you wrestle and you struggle and you fight and you, you, you wish you had made more progress by now, but you haven't. You wonder, how could it be that you'll someday be glorified in, in utter sinless perfection when right now you're burdened with sins and struggling with them and trying to fight them and temptations are on every side of you, just closing in on you, allurements from the world to entice you into sinful pleasures and unrighteousness. It's just, how can God fulfill his promises to me? You wonder circumstantially how God could actually bring his promises to pass. Your life just may be a mess. You love Jesus, but your life's a mess. 
How, how can it be someday that I will be brought into glorified perfection to stand before the Lord Jesus without a hint of sin? <laughs> how can that be? And this is exactly why God seals his promises with an oath. That's the point. This is exactly why he seals his promises with an oath and, and introduces, you might say, a divine redundancy. This is what he says. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That will happen. He says, you will someday be resurrected to eternal life and live in a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness will dwell. dwell. That will happen. He says, I will reign over the earth and over the entire universe. I will be exalted. Death will be no more. Satan will be vanquished. Your tears will be wiped away. Sin will be eradicated from your body and soul. You will live forever in the presence of your Savior. You will never experience fear or anxiety or pain or sin or suffering again. You will behold for all eternity the beauty and glory of my Son, undistracted, unhindered, unfiltered for all eternity, with no fear of condemnation or death or relational or economic or political trouble. That will happen. And that's the hope that is set before us. God has sworn by himself to bring these things to pass. And he does it so that we, here it is in the latter part of verse 18, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. When you are rattled by sin and temptation and by suffering and tempted to come off the path of the cross God not only delivers a warning, he delivers incredible encouragement that you might grasp a hold of that true and certain promise and not let it go. He will save. He will bring it to pass so that you will be encouraged not to turn your back on the gospel, but to keep moving, keep believing, and to keep serving. This comes to the the next part, verses 19 through 20. The power of oath seal promises, spiritual stability. What is is an oath seal promise meant to, to do in the life of the believer? To create spiritual stability. The things that I just said are are going to happen, that God has said is going to happen. The, The assurance of that is meant to now create spiritual stability. It serves, as the author here says, as an anchor of our souls. Verse 19, we have this, the hope, that is, that he just mentioned, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is wonderfully illustrative language, isn't it? The Bible is not short on beautiful illustrations to help us grasp what's going on here. This is not some sort of weak, flimsy $2 anchor that you throw over the side of some fishing boat. This is a massive anchor that is wrenched into the seabed that keeps you from drifting. When a ship needs to halt its position near port or elsewhere, it throws in, the captain has the crew throw in an anchor. And I don't know if you've ever seen videos of this happening on these massive cargo ships. The chains are like the size of... Uh, this section of people sitting right here. I mean, the chains are huge. The anchor is huge. The boat is massive. And, and, and they're rolling out these huge anchors. And what they do is they, they, they spin out the, the chain and it, 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 the anchor uh, goes out under the boat or over the, the side of the ship. And it eventually makes it down to the ocean floor. 
And the natural movement of the boat or the movement of the boat in general will then drag the chain and the anchor along the floor until it eventually, by the shape of it, just wrenches itself right into the ocean floor. It's quite a remarkable thing to, to see. And so once that happens, once it's anchored, once it's right wrenched there into the seabed, that massive ship that could weigh up to 250,000 tons is secure. It won't drift anywhere. It won't be pushed in a particular direction, even if the wind and the waves are, 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 are starting to batter the, the ship. It's anchored. It won't drift. And now in this illustration, of course, our souls are the ship that needs to re- remain in place. We can't drift from the Lord. That's one of the primary arguments of the book of Hebrews. We can't drift from the Lord or the gospel. The anchor is that hope of eternal life that's based on an oath seal promise. Where does the anchor land? What's our ocean bed? Well, it's actually not in the ocean. It's actually in the opposite direction. It's in heaven. The anchor lands in heaven, in the very presence of God. Quote, a hope that enters into the inner place that goes behind the curtain. That's where our hope is. That's where our hope is anchored. That's where it's wrenched itself, never to be severed or let go. And this language of behind the curtain refers back to the Old Testament Holy of Holies. You had the tabernacle, and then you had the temple built on the same pattern of the tabernacle. In both cases, you had the outer courtyard, and then when you went inside the tabernacle, you had the holy place, and then separating that holy place was another section of the uh, interior part of the tabernacle and the temple called the most holy place, or the holies of holies, and that was always separated by a big, ornate veil or curtain. And uh, it housed the Ark of the Covenant, and it was, it was the place where God's glory and presence dwelt, and the high priest was only allowed to go in there, and only the high priest, and he was allowed to go in there once a year and only once a year, and he was only able to perform a particular way of, of splattering the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and, and handling the, the blood sacrifice in God's presence, else he would have been struck down dead. He could only do it a particular way, and so he enters in and he, he atoned through that sacrifice. He went into the very presence of God in that Holy of Holies and he atoned for the sins of God's people. This text is saying that Jesus has actually entered into the very presence of God. All of that temple and all of that tabernacle, that was all symbolic. That was all meant to point towards the final fulfillment in Christ, the one who actually enters into the true Holy of Holies, God's very presence in heaven, and he wrenches that anchor into that presence. And now that is what you are now attached to so that you will not drift away from the Lord God, the Lord Jesus. Because of Christ, we have full access into God's very throne room. We've already talked about that in Hebrews chapter 4. And we're called to go to that throne of grace all the time. When Jesus died, the moment he died, that curtain, that veil in the temple was torn in Two, and that was meant to indicate to all who had eyes to see that access to God was now open to all in all places. You didn't need to go to a special location to be in the presence of God. All you needed was faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And now those who have believed have access to God 24-7, 365 days a year. And this word forerunner indicates that, that Christ has gone in before us, Right? He didn't leave us. He didn't desert us. He goes in before us. 
And so we can now anticipate, we, we, we get to experience some of God's entering into God's presence now here on this earth. We can actually, when you pray in, in Christ, you actually are going into the very presence of God, the very throne room of God. But we are also, because Christ is our forerunner, we're anticipating a day where we enter into his, his presence in its complete fullness. And so that's what we are encouraged to with, encouraged by here in verse 19. Christ has gone behind the curtain. He's gone into that heavenly holy of holies and wrenched the anchor there and we are now attached to that and settled and cannot drift. And the reason why we're given all of this incredible truth is so that you will have the encouragement to hold fast to your hope. Particularly when your circumstances cry out to you to say, there's no way these promises will ever be fulfilled. And Satan will exploit your circumstances to try to convince you otherwise. So God comes along and he seals his promise with an oath. It will absolutely happen. Christ has died for you. Your sins are forgiven. Your sin has been covered fully by the blood of my son. And if there are any here today, and this sounds unfamiliar to you, I would encourage you from Scripture, on the authority of Scripture, to hear the call of Scripture calling you to come to a Savior who has opened full access to God. There are no rituals you must accomplish. There are no works you must must do. All that you need is to come to Christ in repentant faith, put your trust in Him, your sins will be forgiven, and you will be brought into the very presence of God with all of your sins completely forgiven. Well, there is more that he has to say, actually, that is intended to bolster our assurance even more. And it has to do with Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. Look here at the last part of verse 20, 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the first time, the third time, rather, he's mentioned Melchizedek. He really wants to get to Melchizedek. And it's... It's interesting because he had to stop the conversation and address some things, and now he's coming back to it. And he's going to re-engage that original conversation. And next week, we're going to learn some pretty deep biblical theology that's going to be nourishing for our souls. Let me just whet your appetite, and then we'll close. Next week, we'll see how a random, seemingly random Old Testament character that shows up just for a few verses in Genesis 14. When's the last time you've even read Genesis 14? Genesis 14 for just a moment and then mention one other time in, in Psalm 110 and the argument of Hebrews chapter 7 is that his character and what's said about him is actually an indication that the Levitical priesthood in the Old Covenant had a built-in expiration date. It was always meant to be temporary, and you should have seen it. You should have known it if you were paying attention to Melchizedek. And Jesus now has that Melchizedekian priesthood. And now having that Melchizedekian priesthood, what his high priesthood is saying is that the old covenant is temporary, but your access to God through me is permanent. And that's what we're going to learn next week as we study Melchizedek. He has to do with all of that stuff, and it's going to be really exciting. So let's pray and thank God for the absolute certainty of his promises.
Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for the absolute certainty of your promises. I do pray that each of us would rivet ourselves to your word, to these promises, that we would meditate on them until we believe them, that you would not allow any of us to live uh, without assurance, though I know some do, and I even have, and assurance is something that we feel more or less during the weeks and the days and the months. So I do pray that this word would have its effect in our lives by bolstering our assurance, encouraging us to hold even stronger to those promises, knowing that you have sealed those promises with an oath. They're absolutely certain you will accomplish your promises in our lives. We thank you for them in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.